Uh, so last week, how many of you heard my talk last week? Whether you were here or you saw it later. Um, last week, I, I received some great feedback about the talk. Many of you uh, sort of said it was what you needed to hear. And I actually connected and had some deeper conversations with a couple folks during the week. And in fact, last week after the service, uh, Jeff came up to me and said he was really good to see me so open and honest and vulnerable in my sharing last week. Um, so I want to invite you to strap in, because it's going to be another Sunday on the Ogan Emotional Express <laughs> right now. So prepare yourselves. Um, one, of the, one of the nice things about moving back to this area um, and I did that. It's, it's coming up almost on a year. I can't believe it. it was like last March I moved back. Where did the year go? Um, the, uh, one of the good things about moving back was reconnecting with a handful of friends that I went to college with. I went to college, Shenandoah University in Winchester. We can we're so west of here. And uh, because it's a fairly local college, quite a few people who lived in the area and continue to live in the area you know, I went to school with and, and I met with. So coming back, I was able to reconnect with some of them, um, not all of them. There was this one, one guy um, who was particularly memorable from my college experience, and we stayed in contact off and on, lives just in Rockville. Um, and he was like, I went to college, was it 94? Damn, that seems a long time ago now. <laughs> Um, and he was, he was like the consummate, like, 80s here band holdover sort of deal. Picture that in your mind. Um, but I moved back, and I reached out to him, and I was like, hey, I'm back in town. Been a while since we saw each other. We should connect. He said, yeah, we should do it. But he's got a little kid, and he's working. He's busy. And so we did. And then my birthday rolled around last June, and I had a little get-together and I invited him. And he's like, man, I'm out of town that weekend. Sorry, we'll do it again. And we kept messing, missing each other. On Thursday, while celebrating Ava, my girlfriend, celebrating her birthday in the afternoon, in the midst of that joyous day, I received news that he has suddenly died. Not sure why, and in fact, um, after church today, um, a couple of us are getting together to go to the, what they call the visitation period um, today. His actual funeral service is tomorrow, but the, the shock rippled through our like, community of alumni who, who knew him um, as well. And you know how they say sometimes, well, maybe you don't know, but us ministers, we give the talks that we want to hear and that we need to hear. And I didn't realize I was given the talk that I needed to hear just five days later. And I remembered the things I said on last Sunday and I began to put them into practice, feeling the shock and, and, and the pain, the, the, the regret and guilt for not taking the really pushing to, to, to reconnect and, and spend time with him and his, and his family and all those things. And I sat in that and feel it bubble up, felt it triggering all the other past griefs I have had, starting with... Jennifer passing away in 2015, and then over the course of the next two years, losing four of the relatives 
in quick succession, my grandparents, an aunt who was very close to from the time I was a little kid. This all comes swirling up again, the, the collective weight of, of realizing we're about to hit, or we just hit, 900,000 deaths from the pandemic and all the lives and loss and disrupted as a result of that. It all came crashing, and I remember to breathe and sit in it and allow it to come up and feel it for about three hours, and then I was like, that's all I can handle today. Then I went and poured myself three, three fingers of good bourbon <laughs> and sipped it into a place of numbness, which is not sort of how that spiritual practice of grief is supposed to go. So then I started to feel bad for what I did. I did what the Buddhists call the second arrow. Are you all familiar with this concept? The second arrow is like you don't respond well to a situation and then you feel bad about it and then you feel bad about feeling bad that you felt bad about it, right? It's the second arrow. So I'm doubly beating up on myself and shortly in the midst of the bourbon drinking came emotional eating, right? Because... That's what happens with some of us. Some of us drink our feelings. Some of us eat our feelings. Some of us watch TV our feelings. Some of us sex our feelings. We have all these ways of numbing out. And, and this is the question we always have to ask ourselves when it comes to our spiritual practice. And at what point are we, are we really doing the practice or are we just performing the practice? Right? How many of us like to meditate? Let me rephrase that question. How many of us love the idea of meditating, love to talk about how much we love the idea of meditating versus how much we're actually doing the meditating? Right? Okay? I remember, remember the church in Massachusetts I was at. It was one of those moments, you know how sometimes like, We've got this, what, what I like to call the brain-mouth barrier, right? We think a thing, but we know better than to say it out loud, right? Inside thoughts is what I like to call them. And I was having a day where, I don't know, I was not fully present to myself for a whole host of reasons. And I'm in the receiving line, and, and, and this guy comes through the receiving line. He says to me, hey, Reverend Ogan, love the service, love what you said today. I'm wondering if during the course of the service, you could make the meditation longer. I love how you guide us into meditation, but can you make it longer? Because for some of us, especially me, this is the only time I get to meditate all week. And before I could stop myself, I said to him, then you're doing meditation wrong. And as the words are leaving my mouth, I'm trying to grab him back. And the look of hurt and shock on his face. It's a moment I wish I could take back. And I tried to dig myself out of the hole by reminding him that meditation, in order for it to do what we say we want it to do in our lives, needs to be a consistent practice, like all our spiritual practices. But I was not being present. I was not being mindful. If I remember correctly, probably wasn't doing a lot of meditating then during the week as well. 
So I said what I said, and, and, and I regret it, and I apologize. Didn't see him. He didn't come back for a few months, probably, I think. And then we eventually saw him again, and, and I apologized again. It was a whole thing. But, but this, is, this is what often happens. You know, some of us love to come here on Sundays or go to our weekly yoga class or weekly Tai Chi class and, and we say we are engaged in our spiritual practice, but then that's all we do. And I, don't, and I don't mean this as a disparagement. I mean it as an invitation for you to ask yourselves, is that really practicing versus I'm doing this performative act? And is it having the impact that you wish it was having on your life? Which is bringing me to my sort of mixed feelings around Black History Month. It is February, and Black History Month is, is, is a practice that's been going on in the United States for decades. And it's important. It's important because it is a time where we highlight the contributions of black Americans to the growth, development, the wonder, the beauty of this country that have previously been whitewashed. And let's be clear that black history is not a separate, unique compartment of American history. It is American history. So it's important and Part of the, like I said, issue I have with it is that for many people, sort of like June, June's Pride Month, so for many people and many organizations like they do in Pride Month, there's a lot of performative actions where we see commercials and changing and adapting of logos and programs to say, here's how much we support the black community in February, or here's how much we support the LGBTQ community in June, or all these other groups. But then what happens during the course of the rest of the year? What happens when you look and see how they are actually supporting at any other time of the year? I'll give you two quick examples of the practicing versus the performing. Um, we all remember what happened January 6th last year, the, the, the insurrection at the Capitol of Trump supporters trying to stop the certification. And, and in spite of what happened on that day and how scared and threatened the senators and representatives felt after coming out of hiding, there were still 147 of them, Republican senators and uh, representatives, who voted not to certify the results of the election. And many people were aghast by this, and many corporations stepped up and said, we are not going to continue to financially support these individuals directly through contributions or indirectly by giving to super PACs. We're going to look and see who we've been given to and realize we can't support these individuals who undermine our democratic process. So a lot of corporations came on and said that. Some followed through, some did not. 
Here's an example of some who said they were going to stop, and they actually did. You can look this up, but here are some names. You'll recognize some of these. Airbnb, Amazon, American Express, General Mills, uh, Zillow, everybody's favorite property group, the Coca-Cola Company, uh, Target, Whirlpool, Bank of America. Now, some of these corporations are hideous for other reasons. <laughs> That's another talk another day. But for this moment, in this context, they said, we're going to stop, and they did. Some said they were going to stop and reevaluate, and they did not. People like American Airlines, groups like American Airlines, Capital One, uh, JetBlue Airways, MetLife, Tyson's, uh, United Airlines, CVS, AT&T, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Walmart, Google, continue to give donations directly or indirectly to these individuals who are still to this day seeking to undermine that process. Practicing versus performing. Another quick example, uh, you know recently that um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment Act came up for a vote. This was a bill to restore many of the, the voting rights that were stripped away in 2013. Quick lesson, quick civics lesson. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 needed to be put in place because of the history of voter disenfranchisement in the United States that was pointedly towards minorities, namely in the South and black folks. So, so the 1965 act, part of it was the, the states that had a history of doing things like, like uh, um, what do you call it, uh, poll taxes or liter literacy tests for black people to vote and other such heinous uh, uh, voting obstacles, those states, when they made any changes to their laws around voting, had to have approval by the Justice Department. That was written in to the Voting Rights Act. Many southern states, like Texas, Georgia, Florida, other places like that, Tennessee. And then somehow in 2013, the Supreme Court decided, oh, we are all post-racial now because we have a black president. So we don't need components of this anymore. And they pulled them out of the Voting Rights Act. The day they did that, there were states that implemented stricter voting requirements. States like Texas. And, and we don't have to guess. We actually have data to show that this disproportionately affects minorities. And they're not, they're not shy about it either. And often, a couple of them will say the things out loud that should have been kept quiet. They forget to use the inside voice and say the things. Most recently, Senator Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, who said that we didn't need these amendments because when you look at the data, black Americans, sorry, African Americans, are voting at the same rates as Americans. And apparently, we're different than Americans. And of course, he made apologies later. He misspoke. But this is a thread that has persisted throughout the history of the United States, that some people aren't really Americans. 
We can change laws. We can be very performative in what we do. But until consciousness changes, we won't really see anything different. It's scaringly parallel to my spiritual life. I can say, I love to meditate. I can read a lot of books, show up at a lot of classes and workshops, come to church every Sunday. Well, I'm not doing that. I don't even do that as a minister. Come to church every Sunday. I, I remember, you know what's the, the best part? One of the best parts of being a minister is when you run into someone out in the rest of the world, and one of the first things they always tell you is, here's why I wasn't at church on Sunday. And I always had to remind them, this is when I was working full-time, I always had to remind them, you know, hey, it's okay. I'm not there every Sunday too when I'm the minister. It's all right. No one's taking attendance. <laughs> I don't care that you show up or don't show up every Sunday. What I care about is are you practicing consistently the spiritual tools and the spiritual principles we talk about? That's what really matters. Is your consciousness shifting for the better? And when I say better, let me be clear. Is your consciousness becoming more mindful, more self-aware, more expansive? Are you going deeper into the divine self of who you are? If you're doing that, I don't care if you show up every Sunday or not. I really don't. Are you practicing the tools to become who you say you want to be or are you just putting up a good show for yourself? Which is it? And let's be clear, we're going to have our moments going back and forth. When I poured those three fingers of bourbon on Thursday, I stepped out of my spiritual practice to numb from the from the enormity and weight of the feelings that I was trying to navigate for the previous three hours. And I was aware of it, aware enough to say, tomorrow I begin again. And I did. And I have. So it's not about perfection, but it is about consistent practice. For example, in your, in your uh, recent trans, uh, time with, with Reverend Steve during this transition and you, and, you, and you created new core values of the community, one of them is a commitment to anti-racism. And there have been some, some, some practices that support that. The board, for example, um, you, you may know this, the, the, you, you give donations here and, and the church, as an organization, tithes some of those back out into the community in various places um, and over the course of a lot of organizations. And, and on that list, and I think the, uh, you should be seeing those in your newsletter. Here's who we, here's who we tithe to this month. Um, on that list of rotating organizations, sprinkled here and there were some... Um, um, anti-racist organizations, and the board recently just made a commitment to every month make sure 
an anti-racist organization is on the is one of those three or four that we tithe to. Okay, there was a list, and and we weren't hitting one every month. The board recently cited, you know what? If we're if we're going to be a church that is committed to anti-racism, we have to put literally our money where our mouth is, and that decision was made. So now every month, a portion of what you give goes towards some anti-racist organization. That's commitment. That's action. But here's the thing. Church is made up of who? Who is the church? You are. The consciousness of the church is whose consciousness? Your consciousness. So regardless of what the board or the church as an organization does, its consciousness is still the consciousness of everyone who is walking through that door collectively. So if you want to truly be an organization committed to anti-racism, committed to equality for all, committed to transforming the world, it'll only happen if each and every one of you as individuals are making that commitment and being in action towards it And that action always begins with your internal transformation. Being anti-racist is more than being not racist. Anti-racism is a practice. It is a spiritual practice, and it is an in-real-life practice. And part of the spiritual practice is like any other spiritual practice. A spiritual practice is something that that, that, that brings us closer to the full truth of who we are. And one of the things that has happened over centuries is that in this country and other parts of the world, because of practicing racism, we have centered, we've done what we call, we've centered whiteness. And when I say centered whiteness, here's how that shows up. Look at beauty standards. Look at beauty standards in the world especially here in this country, what, what for, for decades have we defined as the ideal beauty? Look at entertainment. How many decades has the movie industry, for example, said, we, we're not going to create a blockbuster with, with black leads? Yeah, then they made Black Panther. That broke some records, yeah. Right? So the question is, again, we've, we've done what we call internalize some of these, what, what we call in the business, white supremacy cultural norms. And I, when I say white supremacy, I know that word, like sends some shivers up some people's spines. I'm not just talking about the extremes of it. I'm talking about the things I just mentioned, these internalized ideas of what's best and what's the standard and what will sell and what won't sell and who we should see on our screens. That's what I mean by centering whiteness. So part of our work is to decenter it. And that begins with us looking and asking ourselves, what are some of the unconscious things that I show up in the world believing that I didn't know I believed before? And that's a, that's a challenging journey and one that doesn't happen overnight as well. And it's not, and to be clear, people of color have internalized some of this as well. 
One example, which I think every person of color in this room must have, might have heard some variation of in their lifetime, is we got to work twice as hard to get half as far. That is an internalized white supremacy cultural idea. Because we shouldn't have to. We should not have to. But we've had to because whiteness has been centered. This is the spiritual work. This is the internal work that we need to take on for each and every one of us to shift our consciousness individually so that then we can shift our consciousness collectively. This is how we get past the performative aspect of, oh, it's Black History Month, let's pat ourselves on the back for putting up some great memes on Facebook, for, 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 for acknowledging, and then March, April rolls around and we kind of like, yeah, don't pay attention to it anymore. And then the same thing when Pride Month rolls around again, if you're a straight person like I am and you're like putting up all the rainbow memes and then July, August rolls around, then maybe we don't pay attention to it as much. Are we practicing or are we performing? Only you can answer that question for yourselves. And only you can decide what you want to do about it. But realize that true change, true lasting change, will only come when each of us, whether it's, well, not whether it's, when we realize that everything, everything is spiritual work. Everything is spiritual work because we all live from the inside out. So that's my invitation to you, not just this week, not just this month for Black History Month, but every month of the year, every day of the year, ask yourself, if I truly am committed to the practice of anti-racism, of creating a world of love, justice, and equity that works for all, am I doing the work internally to realize my part in that? That's the invitation. That's the challenge. And that's my hope. And that's the confidence that I have in each and every one of you. And to be clear, I am on that journey with you as well. And it's not that we ever get to a point when it's over. It's an ongoing invitation. So don't just meditate when you're here. Don't just do the yoga when you go to the class. And don't just practice being anti-racist for Black History Month. Let's take this into meditation. So I invite you to ground both feet on the floor. Take a deep breath. If you're comfortable, close the eyes. Feel welcome to leave them open. If it feels better, feel safer. But connect with the breath. And as you connect with the breath and it brings you into this moment, into being centered, notice the body and what's happening in the body. If there are feelings of discomfort, of anxiety. If 
just notice without judgment. And just continue to connect with the breath. Regardless of whatever choices you may have made before this moment, let us approach the next moment free of regret, but centered in the intention for our actions to reflect our true intentions. Let's become mindful that the principle of oneness which exists in the realm of consciousness can only exist in the physical realm. When we release all those embedded unconscious thoughts that seek to separate us. So from this moment on, let us be mindful that our actions reflect our intention. center knowing that you already are and already have all you need to be in that practice of actions reflecting intentions and in so doing our consciousness continues to shift towards the fullness of the truth that we are the embodiment of love the embodiment of oneness, the embodiment of all that is, the embodiment of God. rest in the truth I am the embodiment of God and I live it every day I am the embodiment of God and I live it every day let us rest in this for a few moments of silence.
I am the embodiment of God. And I live it every day. Let this be our intention, our affirmation. And let it be the guide for our actions. And so it is. And so we let it be. Amen.